All right. Welcome back to Acts of Pod. Kind of a two-part episode this week. We have kind of an analysis here to start off with. I'm joined by John Wackman from Nyland Johnson Law Firm. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. Thanks, Brandon. How about you? I'm good. I'm, uh, you know, quarantining myself and socially distancing as much as possible, although I'm at the office today, but there's nobody here, so I can kind of keep very uh, keep very isolated. How about you? Same. Yeah, I'm in the office today and, and not many people here or in town, so it's it's fairly easy in downtown Minneapolis to be isolated. So Yeah, it's a new world, but here we are. John and I are going to dive a little bit into some of what's been going on in the headlines lately around scooter and micromobility litigation. As a second part to this episode, we have an interview with AJ Chin, who was the risk manager for Bird for about a year and a half before Bird did their kind of recent rounds of layoffs. I think they laid off about 400 people due to the pandemic and to the shutdown. So AJ has a ton of experience, and he was a great person to talk to about some of the stigma attached to scooters in the early days and how that's kind of carried over. And I think it kind of dovetails well into the conversation that John and I want to have around the litigation that's been out there and kind of taking over some of the headlines. From my perspective, every time I bring a submission to the market and to those underwriters that are not super familiar with micromobility, you know, the first thing that I hear about is class action lawsuits and large plaintiff cases against the industry. And we have, I think, two examples of that that are out there right now. Uh, it sounds like from the same law firm, right, John? Yeah, same law firm out of California. First one is sort of alleging that there's some sort of problem uh, with the overarching product as well as some other things. And then the, the second one, the, the more recent one, which uh, was in the papers, was about, you know, kind of a combo platter of a lot of people are getting hurt. So there's bad brakes, there's bad throttles, there's a number of, of elements of the scooters that are allegedly defective, as well as a claim of lack of maintenance. Yet another claim that somehow the defendant was encouraging the people who pick up the scooters and charge them not to report that there's problems with them. So it's sort of a whole bunch of allegations that are somehow supposed to be a class action. Well, there's a lot to talk about here and a lot to unpack. You know, the first thing an underwriter does is, I think AJ kind of outlined this too. They have the internet, they have Google, they get on and they they do some research in terms of the space that they're potentially writing in, in which they should be doing their research. And that's great. Obviously, this is a very new industry. Uh, it's only about three years old. It, it had a dramatic increase in in ridership just due to the popularity and the the idea being a good one. Obviously, the idea is multi pronged. It's to reduce congestion on the roads. Uh, it's fun to ride a scooter, and you know it can kind of accomplish that last mile that you have of you know maybe you're riding the bus, maybe you're taking a car. You park and then you ride the scooter to wherever you need to get. I mean, it's it's a great concept. Uh, but with any great concept, I think there's going to be some early issues that happen with it. But just due to the overarching popularity and volume here, I think we probably saw some early issues, which is expected. I think you can clearly see that in the kind of the delineation between these two lawsuits, too. And I'm uh, you know I'm not a lawyer, but I've stayed at a Holiday Inn Express one time, John. But. Me, me, 
maybe you can give us a little background in terms of your uh, experience with personal transportation vehicles and, and how you kind of use that to look and examine these these cases that we got here. You know, my background, obviously, I've handled lots of product liability cases. And what you're reading in the paper on these micro-mobility situations is sort of, a, to my, my view, very slanted because the reporters are talking to the people who get hurt. And so they're saying, oh, there must have been something wrong with the product. And that's what you hear in every personal injury product liability case. I mean, that's why there's, there's a case. They're alleging something wrong with the product. When you actually dive into the issues and look at the situation, it's often a product misuse. The person hasn't operated the right way. They haven't gone where they're supposed to go, and they've done the wrong things with the product. So we're not hearing that story in the papers. You know, you would hear it in the context of litigation. So when I handle a case like this, you bring out the details. Has the person been drinking? Were they wearing a helmet? What exactly were they doing? Oh, there are two people riding on the scooter for one person. All sorts of things come out that don't get reported on, but uh, are the real facts of a case. Doesn't mean that there isn't sometimes a problem with a micro-mobility product. Sure, there are sometimes. With any product, there can be problems, but that doesn't mean just because somebody says it is that it really is the actual facts. You got to delve behind the allegations and look at what really happened in the situation. You know, the old adage here, it's like riding a bicycle, right? I mean, people use that all the time. Obviously, this is not a, you know, scooters are not bicycles, and it's it was a relatively new type of product. And I think that in of itself creates probably a lot of these instances where somebody just hasn't had an opportunity to ride a scooter before and they get on it and they're not necessarily maybe equipped to handle it. And, you know, you you could probably speculate, you know, in terms of what could have been done or what should have been done. But at the end of the day, I mean, the rider is oftentimes just not using the product correctly too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they often just jump on, it looks fun, and then they get themselves in a bad position before they've even learned the product. And the other context is that with any product, and you just mentioned bicycles, people fall off bicycles, people run into things, people get hurt on bicycles, it happens, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the bicycle. So there is going to be, you know, if you look in the context of how many miles are ridden on a bicycle versus how many accidents really happen, the ratio is incredible you know, how many miles is compared to the number of accidents. You'd find the same thing with scooters. I mean, that's some of the context you need to bring out is, I mean, there are hundreds of scooters in given cities and they're being ridden constantly, you know, in non-pandemic times, all over the place, many multiple uses. You know, relatively speaking, there aren't that many incidents. But if you just peg the incidents, it looks like, oh my gosh, there must be a problem really in relationship to how many scooters are out there, how many people are on them, how many miles they went, you'd say well, they're relatively safe uh, mode of transportation compared to some other things. Yeah. I mean, I think the primary example of that would be automobiles. We talk about the headlines here, but the headlines are not headlines in the auto space because it's been around so long. But I mean, we're talking about 40,000 deaths a year uh, with people driving cars. So I think the goal of the industry has to be kind of understood too as it relates to these headlines because it's obviously aiming to change the way that people transport themselves around cities. And if the goal here is to reduce congestion and traffic and the use of automobiles, uh, derivative of that goal is to reduce deaths and accidents because 
there's a lot of those that happen with automobiles. So I think that that is a factor that's probably uh, largely ignored in these class actions. I mean, they are trying to do good and are doing good, I think, for large and densely populated areas. Obviously, you know, you have some maybe attorneys and, and plaintiffs that feel differently, but it almost feels like they're sidestepping the larger issue at hand, too. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, it's a two-way street. You know, I think the micro-mobility companies are also learning how people are using the products. And, and so there's an evolution here to say, well, how do we better educate people when they get on the product? For, they're a first-time rider. How do we make sure that they have a good experience? I mean, every company with every product does not want somebody to get injured, even if the people misuse it. So how do we as an industry make it less likely that somebody will misuse the product. When you sign up and you get the app and what should we have people look at and go through and to to emphasize safe and appropriate riding and how can we possibly adjust the scooters to make them safer as we learn how they're used. So it's kind of a two-way street and I think you're seeing that and I think there's there is a greater acceptance of them. I mean, there were sort of plopped down into cities initially and people didn't know what they were and people kind of grabbed them and ran with them. But I think now, you know, you're getting just many more people have ridden them, understand them, starting to appreciate that, hey, you you need to ride them appropriately. So with any product, like you mentioned, there is a learning curve. And I think we're progressing through that with micromobility products. Yeah. And obviously people get hurt. There has to be responsibility taken too. You know, I know way am I supporting not taking responsibility for your actions. But I'm just looking at some of these kind of initial areas where the in 2018, we have an LA Superior Court case filed by that same law firm where you have gross negligence and deployment, aiding and abetting assault, which I found was an interesting uh, accusation, improperly dumping scooters, the devices are a public nuisance, and then buried down at the end was, you know, defective electronics. And that was Lime, Bird, Segway, some other manufacturers. And then on the second one here, filed in Santa Monica by the same firm, you have brake throttle issues as the primary, and you have some broken bones, um, you know, a little bit of improper maintenance. And you have, uh, it doesn't look like Lime was included in that lawsuit, but you do have Segway and a couple other manufacturers. Does that tell you anything about kind of the progression of? you know, maybe the plaintiff's arguments between having these kind of a more refined kind of allegation prosecution set forth here in the second lawsuit? The first one, as you mentioned, was, you know, a lot of the it was sort of touched on, you know, American with Disabilities Act claims because they claimed that they blocked the sidewalks and things like that. And, you know, the city didn't really know what to do with them. So now you do see some evolution in that, to, you know, sort of places where you can either charging stations or where you can, you know, corrals for them and things like that to sort of address those issues. Both cities and the companies have sort of got on to that. And But that first class action was kind of brought all over the place, sort of a cut and paste from city to city. I don't know that it has merit, but I do think it's probably affected some change. Uh, yeah. The second one, you know, is, is core getting into the core product itself and saying, boy, people are getting hurt, so there must be a problem with these scooters. And I think that second one is a very bad candidate for a class action. I'll be very surprised if they get a class certification for a couple of reasons. 
predominantly, you know, in a class action setting, people are familiar where all of a sudden you get a little coupon because there's been a class action. It's often say there's a, a miss something on a bill that wasn't supposed to be charged. Maybe it's a couple dollars. So it wouldn't make sense for you or I to sue about that, but somebody learns about it. But if there's a hundred thousand customers who get charged a couple extra bucks a month, that number gets really big. And it's something that you know, class action is a good vehicle for that to stop that kind of behavior, make sure the company doesn't do it anymore, and then give the people who've been affected, all of us, you know, a, a little something back. You know, that's what you often see for class action. When you're dealing with personal injuries and different circumstances and just different situations, it's not a good candidate because there really aren't common questions of fact. I mean, if you're talking about defective brakes, uh, wheels, throttle, handlebars, those are all can be independent issues. You, you have to get into where was the person using it? What were they doing? There really aren't common questions here. And you're dealing with broken bones and injuries that would have enough value where somebody would pursue it in a lawsuit. So an individual right. lawsuit is is the better vehicle. So what courts look at is a number of factors. I won't go into all of them, but one of them is, are there common questions in the case? And then secondly, do those common questions predominate over individual questions? And here, I would think, no, they don't. I mean, because if somebody's going to claim handlebars in one situation, somebody else is claiming brakes, and somebody else is claiming something else, those are independent issues. And then each of their situations are different. Where were they, were they using it? Were they wearing a helmet? Had they ridden it before? All those factors in to deciding if there is an effective product for that situation. So I, I just think the second lawsuit is a, not a very strong candidate for a class action. What do you think was the motivation behind trying to put this into one case instead of multiple? Given that it's the same law firm, I think one of the motivations is sort of to ride the coattails of the first one and sort of you know take the energy of these negative newspaper articles you see to try to kind of snowball like, hey, there's just something bad about these products. I think that's the motivation. And, you know, if you can lump a whole bunch of plaintiffs together, you know, with broken bones, all of a sudden, you know, the potential damages can can go up a lot higher than, say, if you, what's the value of an individual broken wrist case versus a whole bunch of broken wrist cases, you know, there's right. a, lot, a lot more potential damages in, in the latter. Putting your uh, defense hat on here uh, and, you know, combating some of these from both the, you know, insurance standpoint and the, and the operator standpoint, how do we uh, defend or arm or equip companies in this sector going forward as these claims are on the rise here? You know, what, what sorts of steps can they take to both better position themselves with insurance companies to say, look, this happened to them, but we have these steps to make sure that it doesn't happen to us, or uh, at least trying to reduce the amount of cost burden that a company might go through that gets uh, an action like this. What I would do as a manufacturer, I do several things. First, I would make sure that in the development of the scooters, that you have a robust testing process so that you can point to look at this is what we put these scooters through before they ever get on the streets of a city. Some sort of pushing it to the limits, having it run over curbs and that sort of stuff to show that it will hold up. Secondly, make sure that you have 
a very clear maintenance program so that when those kind of allegations that, oh, you just leave them, you don't take care of them. Well, there is a process by which you look at them, make sure they're operating properly. Uh, You look at what sort of warnings are either on the scooters themselves or on the app when you first sign up to make sure that you are educating consumers as best you can so you can explain to a jury that this is what somebody has to go through on the app before they ever ride the scooter. And if they if they actually read this and follow it, they would not have had the accident. And then as best you can, as soon as you hear of an incident, and if you can know the scooter, pull that scooter out of the fleet so that you can maintain it, protect it, and then preserve it and test it to be able to show, hey, it was performing fine. You know, the brakes aren't going to fix themselves. So we pulled it out of service and now we've tested it and they work exactly as as we want them to. You have a uh, kind of an extensive background with ATVs and uh, recreational vehicles in general. Do you see some parallels here in terms of how that industry initially was seen from a claims and litigation perspective, an accident perspective, to how the micromobility industry is is kind of now being viewed? Yeah, I think there's sort of that, what we talked about before, that learning curve. And as you may recall, you know, initially ATVs were primarily three-wheeled vehicles. And so you kind of remember the reputation of three-wheeled ATVs being very tippy and things like that, which ultimately led to the government getting involved. And and they're no longer three-wheel ATVs made, and they evolved over time to the what we see now are four-wheel ATVs. And so, right. you know, they sort of addressed that negative connotation of a three-wheeler by redesigning the products. You know, there are still allegations that they were too tippy and things like that, but the companies did what I said, which is they, they tested them, they showed that these things are very stable and that you have to go to extraordinary positions to overturn them. And so then explain why these are good products. And so and then over time, more and more people got familiar with ATVs and especially the four-wheel ATVs and how they operate and how they work. And so there's still litigation in that area. They're much more accepted, understood vehicle. They're much more mature vehicle. So people in the public kind of know about them and don't have necessarily a, a bad impression of them from a safety perspective. Seems like it's kind of evolving along those same paths. Seems like jurisdictions are getting more and more involved and sophisticated when it comes time to deployment. Like you said, some are requiring docks or you know geofenced uh, areas that you specifically have to drop off the scooter or e-bike or whatever it is. It does seem that there is an evolution both on the manufacturing side where we're seeing some pretty sophisticated uh, product technology come out, you know, where we didn't have that maybe initially. I think even AJ alluded to the fact where some of the early scooters in the industry that were put out were probably not what we would call commercial grade scooters today. You know, they were very consumer grade, but that's all that really existed. So you have now this evolution of product like Acton and Segway and Super Pedestrian now with a fully integrated product and an operation. So you're you're getting a lot more sophistication as uh, these companies get more familiar with it. And likewise, on the city side, the cities are getting more sophisticated in terms of what they require out of the operator, whether that's insurance requirements. You know, cities didn't even have insurance requirements two or three years ago. And now you're seeing some fairly draconian uh, insurance requirements. 
but you're also seeing specific, how do we want to operate this in the best and most responsible manner? So it does seem like something that is progressing in the right, for any underwriters that are that are listening to this, I would say, keep an open mind because I, I think this is, a, to me, a much safer mode of transportation than, you know, alternatives. And the accidents that we do tend to see that are at least, you know, really, really bad accidents are scooter riders that are getting hit by automobiles, you know, not the scooters themselves. So, And, and this is what you'd expect. I mean, and, th- and that's some of the value of some of this early litigation is it, it opens the eyes of the uh, scooter makers and the, and the suppliers of scooters to say, you need to make a product that's very robust because of how people are using it and and the risks involved. And so the products get better over time. I've had a lot of cases where somebody will look at one version of, of a product and then they look at the next version and they say, well, geez, this next one's better. And I always say, well, I would sh- certainly would hope so. I mean, there right. companies, every company is constantly trying to improve their products. They're not trying to make them worse. And we've seen that in this industry as we've moved through iterations of, of products, they're getting better. And they yeah. will continue to get better. And that's because of litigation, part because of competition amongst each other. And and you want to have a very safe, excellent scooter that somebody can go on. And, and we're, we're continuing to see that and we're, we're getting to that place. And as you said, it's often a collision situation now, not the scooter itself breaking down. Yeah, I always thought that was a funny argument. When I was a, a risk manager uh, for Gorilla Ladders, you know, we'd always get a plaintiff's attorney saying, well, I mean, this, this new product has, you know, more features. It's better. Well, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole point. Right. You know, we're, we're trying to make a safer product. You know, it's, that's not some sort of admission of guilt or admission that this old product was, you know, not meeting standards. It's just, you know, how, how progress happens. So. And I, and that's why I always counsel my clients when they're coming out with a new version. I said, always, I mean, that's your goal is to make a better product and, you right. know, maybe more fun, but also a safer product if you can. And, right. you know, because you make a safer, better product does not mean the previous product w- was not proper in any way. It's not defective, yeah. but you make a product better. You know, that's an evolutionary process that happens with all products all the time. And that, that should be what every company is striving for. Well, I think this is a good place to stop. I uh, appreciate you uh, being a, a, a guest or a co-host on the podcast today, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you more in the future. Wonderful. Thanks for having me again. Next up, we have my interview with AJ Chin. AJ is the former risk manager and head of insurance for Bird. Prior to that, he got his start in the insurance business as an intern for Liberty Mutual, and then he had a small three-year stint over at Travelers, where he was an account executive, and followed by about six years at Chubb Insurance, where he was an underwriter, followed by a senior underwriter working on a variety of different tech-related accounts. So we hope you enjoy the interview. We went into a lot of good detail about what the uh, micromobility space should be doing from a risk management perspective, along with kind of how the underwriting community should be maybe taking a look at the micromobility space a little bit differently and laying some of the newspaper headlines and the stigma aside to really dig deep 
into the data because, you know, the data may suggest, and I think it does suggest that the micromobility space is not as wicked as it appears in terms of the, the claims and loss ratios and that sort of thing. So enjoy the episode and thanks for tuning in. All right, everybody, welcome back to Acts of Pod. I got a special guest today, AJ Chin. Uh, AJ has a very interesting career, kind of embedded in the insurance and risk management space, uh, starting off on the carrier side and then uh, on the micromobility side, on the risk management side. Welcome, AJ, to Acts of Pod. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for being on. Well, one of the things that we, we like to do right away is just get to know the guests a little bit before we kind of dive into semantics. Tell us about your background and how you uh, got into the risk management space. Sure. So before coming on, you know, I, I did a little bit of listening to your podcast and, and listened to how you <laughs> fell into insurance. You know, I think that that kind of resonates with most people. You know, you kind of fall into the insurance industry. I, I grew up in, in the Boston area in the Northeast and happened to come upon an internship with Liberty Mutual uh, in the Boston area. It wasn't in the nuts and bolts of insurance, but was in their finance department and got to know a little bit about insurance from that space. Um, and from there, you know, was recruited to be a part of an underwriting training program. I think a great way to get into the insurance industry, you know, was posed to me as a way to get great training within this space, you know, understand what underwriting was when it was posed to me. I had no idea what, what underwriting was, um, knew about auto insurance, knew about personal lines insurance, but not a whole lot about uh, commercial insurance. So I went through a training program at Travelers, took that to, you know, diving into the business insurance space, technology clients in particular, moved over to the Bay Area, obviously the hotbed of tech in Silicon Valley and and got into and you know insuring companies with very innovative type risk profiles and exposures and then you know a few years ago found this opportunity at Bird was their risk manager for a year and a half going through this really fast paced hyper growth mode in an industry that was so new and brought up its own unique challenges to to the insurance space so was very interesting going through that. Yeah, obviously a long, uh, long way from Boston, Silicon Valley. How did you get introduced to Bird to the tech space? Were you were you underwriting in that space? Yeah. Were you working with micromobility clients? I had seen in you know I was at Chubb at the time and Chubb uh, hadn't dove into the micromobility space at that point. I had you know funny story I'd seen in <laughs> you know submissions Bird included uh, other micromobility players, um, but. Being such a new space, um, when I had seen this submission in at the time, these companies were less than a year old. And you see all of these headlines, you see the media and how it portrays the industry and being such a risky industry that comes with headlines of injuries and concerns. As an underwriter, you see that and you're automatically <laughs> driven to those shock headlines. When you get into the space, you kind of see that you know, it isn't really what it's written up to be. Some of the concerns that are out there are kind of uh, miss, um, as, as you might say. So, yeah, I think you just encapsulated the <laughs> underwriting space as it pertains to micromobility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, headlines. Yeah, even underwriters read headlines, right? So, yeah, I mean, first thing that you, you go to is a Google search, right? These days, you know, you you have your underwriting submission, but then you also do your own research and and. Some of the headlines certainly do influence you on the carrier side. One of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, you started at Bird in 2018. 
that was early days of micromobility. I, I would imagine that from a carrier perspective, I mean, you were you were working on some of the early forms where nobody even really knew how to probably underwrite this risk. I mean, how as a, as a risk manager in micromobility in the early stages, I mean, how do you go about communicating that sort of risk and trying to get that sort of appetite from a carrier? My experience, you know, being in the tech space on the underwriting side, you know, I was used to a lot of doing the selling of the benefits of insurance, the forms that we have that are out there, Look at looking at like the software industry, traditional industries that are already established, you're selling to them your capabilities and why they should go with you as an insurance company. It was quite the opposite on the other side, you know, being in micromobility, being in the scooter share industry that was so new, you don't have that surplus of options that are out there on a risk transfer side with insurance companies. Most are hesitant, you know, when they're looking at you from a risk standpoint. So you're having to do the selling to the insurance companies on why, you know, you're a risk worth taking up. So doing, you know, marketing trips, doing lots of calls to sell and kind of demystify some of the the shock headlines that are out there. Like I mentioned, it is not quite what it's made out to be in the media. The injury rates are not necessarily what they're communicated at in the headlines. So you're doing what you can to explain and educate to insurance companies what is done from a safety standpoint, what's done from a a process standpoint um, internally at your company to sell them and get them comfortable with the industry as a whole and your company uh, in general. Yeah, I I would have to think that'd be pretty kind of exciting to be on the the forefront starting there in the beginning when it was brand new uh, and kind of helping helping to develop the thought process around underwriting. I was at a uh, number of probably 2016, 2017, I was at a conference and I heard Kate Sampson speak, who used to be the risk manager mm-hmm. at Lyft. And she, uh, she was at Marsh before that, but uh, she talked about being there to kind of help formulate the actual form itself because you know that it didn't exist so she 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 was there kind of going through that process alongside the underwriters and brokers to help put something new into the into the insurance space which for an industry that's been the same for a long time i, I gotta think it's kind of an exciting thing yeah and it's following a lot of this like you mentioned with lyft and and, and uber and the rideshare space the micro mobility space has a lot of that same you know uh, culture and 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 trying to um, build up a new industry, one that is uh, changing the way that we're thinking about transportation. And a lot of the same players that were in the Uber and Lyft and the rideshare space are now in the micro mobility space with Scooter Share, with the birds and the limes of the world, and um, taking a lot of that same approach towards working with cities and coming up with a program that that works for both sides. So. Um, a lot of that same methodology is used within this space. It's interesting when insurance can kind of be the innovator alongside, you know, the actual platforms that are also coming. It's fun to see the progress that insurance has made, you know, largely thanks to some of the players that have been in it since these sharing platforms began. Folks like Apollo and a lot of, you know, London is very innovative in general. But obviously, insurance is an issue, right? For the micromobility space, there aren't very many players involved, and that creates a supply and demand problem. From your perspective, I mean, what are underwriters elsewhere that are not writing this risk failing to see when they look at micromobility, besides the headlines? Yeah, I mean, I think 
even taking a step back where the insurance industry, the market is right now with being in a hard market. And then, you know, even before COVID hit, uh, with all the concerns with, with business interruption and everything straining, uh, the market, you're having, you know, underwriters that have a, a steady flow of submissions on their desks. And, you know, as an underwriter, you're looking at, you know, where is my best opportunity? Where should I spend my time on? Um, and in a hard market, you know, when it comes to, you know, very risky, uh, or at least from the face of it, risky uh, clients like a, a micromobility company, you're not going to get as much time of day and attention from insurers. But when you're looking at it from a risk management standpoint and trying to explain and educate these insurers, you know, a lot of them don't necessarily see, you know, what these companies are doing from a safety standpoint, you know, improving the lifespan of these vehicles, the durability of them, you know, when when scooters first came out in 2017, in the shared space, you know, obviously, Bird was the first that introduced them in this shared program setup. And they were not really <laughs> durable or meant to be put into, you know, a shared rental space, you know, you think about rental cars, people don't treat rental cars like they do their own vehicles. So um, there were certainly a lot of improvements that needed to be made to get them up to par to be used in a shared space. And that happened very quickly, obviously, but a lot of improvements were made to the safety of these vehicles, the braking mechanisms, the durability of the tires. Companies that are on the forefront of this space have, have put a lot of investment into improving the safety of these vehicles, which you know you might not see in the headlines like you do the injuries part of it. But a lot of work has been done from a product standpoint to to get these up to par and, and safe. Yeah, you mentioned you know the vehicles and the. Uh, resiliency of the vehicles being one of the issues. Uh, were there other issues, just in general, not not bird specific, but were there other issues like that that the industry kind of kind of encountered early on that had some legacy effects on the industry? Were there are there things that could have been done as an industry maybe better? You hear, you know, when, when the industry came out, it was introduced as you know dropping the scooters in the streets and having, uh, you know, cities that weren't the most happy with, you know, a new industry being, you know, thrown upon them, you know, some of the lawsuits that came out, you know, across the country with these obstructive scooters. Like in, I was in San Francisco and I had seen Bird and Lime and other scooter companies, you know, dropping these scooters there. I didn't have a chance to ride them before they got taken out by the city, but having these novel products that were introduced and cities not being prepared for it, maybe there could have been more um, communication with cities. But, but then again, on the other side of things, with the way you know, that decisions are made within government and cities, this may have not even taken off as an industry if it hadn't been a guerrilla approach towards introducing the idea. So That's an interesting point. You know, we have cities here that are very, very antiquated. Uh, especially in juxtaposition to companies like Bird or Lime or anybody else. I mean, there's clearly a lot of deficiency in knowledge and technology. I mean, how how is it working with cities that are kind of behind you in the level of sophistication and getting things approved and going through this kind of red tape, antiquated approach? Not all cities are created equal. I mean, you know, a lot of cities that have helped uh, drive this industry and and you know, have been prepared for it. I think it certainly is a partnership with micro mobility companies. Your biggest partners are the cities and universities that you're setting up the programs with. But I think it needs the ones that do it better 
the ones that are more you know apt to working with um, companies like Bird and Lime, those are where the successful programs are. Understand it that you know it's not necessarily these big tech companies that are looking to make a profit. It's you know looking to make a difference in the transportation systems that are in the comp- in these cities and moving transportation towards the future. You know, one thing I've noticed just on the broker side, micromobility is you're right, they're not all created equal and they have very different ideas of what an operator should be providing for insurance. You go on one end of the spectrum and, you know, maybe a second level market, they hardly have anything for insurance requirements. And then you go someplace like Santa Monica mm-hmm. where they have I don't, I don't know what it is now, but it was at some point an unaggregated limit. Maybe it's $100 million or something like that now. But I mean, if, if you're not Lime or Bird, you would have a very, very difficult time doing that. Where do you think cities kind of lie on the spectrum of sophistication as it relates to insurance? Are they going by some kind of book that's been written you know, in the past and not up to speed on how difficult this is? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it at least on the early stages. You think of you know 2018, the first full year that micromobility was out there, sure, scooters were out there. Um, a lot that defaulted to the highest amount that they could think possible. Obviously, given the costs and the restraints of insurance, this counted out a lot of players, the smaller players out there. Even you know to an extent, you saw pushback from the big players uh, in in the industry that you know just wasn't profitable and. It kind of came at also a time, you know, with uh, you know the tech industry where companies were getting scrutinized for unprofitable models of business. You know, you think about WeWork and and some of the other companies that were going towards an IPO, and and that kind of all came at the same time. So, you know, having the restraints of you know insurance being so costly, and a lot of that playing into it was these high insurance requirements from cities, you know, that that all kind of came at the same time and didn't work out well for some of the the new entrants to the space, particularly in the US. I can definitely understand the kind of visceral reaction where we want to protect ourselves from any possible issue. So we want we want to make these operators have some astronomical level of insurance. But it seems to me just looking from the outside in, it, it does create sort of a level of disqualification for some of the smaller operators too, which which seem to be becoming more and more out there in the marketplace. You know, you're seeing smaller operators start getting funding and, and seeing more of them, more fragmented approach in some of these, maybe not huge markets, but, you know, smaller markets. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. creates kind of a uh, an imbalance for who can enter into what market too, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 we saw certain smaller operators going for the smaller cities, but you know if they're worried about certain requirements and having to keep up with bigger cities like LA or Santa Monica or others and seeing what they're requiring, it kind of creates a tough spot for, for those cities as well. So with uncertainty. When they create the benchmark, it's kind of this trickle-down effect where as a city, we want to do you know, what the best sharing economy cities are doing. So it creates this sort of barometer for success that can be difficult. The actual risk itself, you're dealing with this kind of invisible antagonist where the user, you don't have control over the riders. It's kind of unique. It's a unique space. It's unlike, you know, Uber or Lyft or anything like that, because, you know, they're, they're technically employed, well, not technically, but they're 1099 employees of the organization. 
you have some sort of control over the driver here. There's no control. I mean, any, anybody could be using it. And I think that's where some of the reaction comes from. But at the end of the day, do we really think there is any more risk here than a conventional bicycle or e-bike? What are your thoughts on the risk itself? What started out with was, you know, e-scooters were new, right? People didn't ride e-scooters like they did, you know, growing up with bikes. So there is certainly that learning curve why you see, you know, maybe some more accidents that you would typically see with bikes. And plus, you know, with a smaller uh, ridership than, you know, your typical bike riders uh, out there, you're going to see maybe some higher percentages of injuries when there's a smaller data set out there. But going back with, um, you know, how scooters are classified, you know, some of the talk about whose responsibility is it, scooters aren't classified the same way in all jurisdictions. You know, in the U.S., they're classified similar to bikes. But if you look at jurisdictions like in Europe, you know, it started out with uh, a few markets like France and Germany where scooters were classified like motor vehicles. Um, that comes with a different set of insurance requirements and how to manage risk there. So right now it's in this very early stage still where it's not uniform across all geographies. And I think once we get to a, a place where it's a little bit more uniform, that makes things a little bit easier from uh, an insurance and risk management space um, to, to handle these. From an operator standpoint, you know, looking back at your time at Bird and looking kind of forward, at the marketplace, are there things that the micromobility operators in space is looking at now that you think could be a benefit to safety? You know, whether it's, you know, docks or, you know, helmets or, or that sort of thing. Where do you think it's going from an industry perspective? I think, you know, the important thing to kind of remember is this is such a new industry. You know, we're still only, you know, not even three years into the industry. But as more people start to ride naturally, the education of riding scooters and, and the proper way to ride and as cities build out infrastructure, that's naturally going to cut down on risks and injuries there. But, you know, like you mentioned with helmets educating riders on the usage of helmets, how it can benefit you, you know, um, some of the other improvements like we talked about with vehicle technology, putting safety as an emphasis, you know, what I was trying to do as a risk manager at Bird was getting, you know, risk management and safety ingrained within the organization. I think, you know, you were a risk manager as well, trying to turn it from, you know, a reactive approach, which, you know, naturally at a fast moving innovative company, that's going to be where it starts out at but turning it into a proactive a philosophy, you know, within the company, everyone thinking about risk management and safety. Um, and as these companies develop and grow, I think that'll help improve the industry from a safety perspective. Totally agree. You probably saw, and I don't know if the announcement came before or after you had left Bird, but Lime has a partnership with Allianz now in Europe selling what appears to be some form of rider insurance. As you mentioned, it, there's motor insurance requirements are much more typical in Europe. Yeah. What do you think in terms of the progression of approach like that, where the operator is kind of integrating an insurance aspect into the kind of the sale or the rental of their of their units? Yeah. I mean, I think that's where we're, we're headed. But again, kind of going back to, you know, where are the requirements within the different geographies? So in Europe, that's why it's moved so fast over there is because, you know, all of these countries and jurisdictions have 
created the, the classification of a scooter as a motor vehicle, which brings on full insurance coverage like an, an automobile. It's not the case in the U.S. yet. I think we're, we're probably headed towards that as the industry develops. And, and once, you know, certain states start to create these requirements. I mean, I know the announcement recently was New York is starting these scooter trials. I don't know if New York is going to create this requirement. I know it was talked about on the policy level. But, you know, once, you know, these cities, uh, bigger cities in the U.S. start to tag on, then you might see a trend towards scooters being classified as motor vehicles. And that would bring on um, these full insurance requirements, which then insurance companies would be more apt towards creating offerings where there's a mandate rather than, you know, this kind of gray area that we're in, where is it, is it required? Is it not required? Is people going to buy it? Are the take-up rates on the insurance policy is going to be there where as an insurance company, we can, we can be comfortable with putting out a product. So, you know, until we get to that space, then you're still in that gray area, uh, at least in the U.S. Not to mention the uh, litigation and loss rates in the U.S. are substantially higher than Europe. Totally agree. AJ, thanks a lot for uh, being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. We'll be uh, watching to see where you end up next. Thanks for having me on, Brendan. Yeah, I, I still keep in my, my whole uh, my whole news feed is is scooters. You know, having been in that industry, so still keeping a, a keen eye on on industry and seeing where it goes for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brendan. <laughs>